welcome to this episode of Unraveling the Digital Human. I'm Chris Drafers-Gibson, and it will be my pleasure to guide you through our exploration of the fascinating questions which arise when humans interact with rapidly changing technology. Uh, as a uh, starting note, um, we're all recording from home during these strange times, so fingers crossed that uh, connections hold and the technology works for us uh, today. It would be an under uh, understatement if uh, we were to say that we are living through particularly unusual times. Um, we're battling a pandemic which has spread quickly and fiercely across continents, and a large population a proportion of citizens across the world are in some state of lockdown. In the UK and across Europe, we have seen offices shut, with many companies and their staff having to rapidly shift their working practices to remote working. This has required investing in technology from laptops, mobile devices, collaborations, looking at automation and AI uh, in order to support these various changes, which are so critical to the continued survival of many businesses. Throughout this public health crisis, we have also seen private industry refocus their innovation, technology and engineering efforts to solving some of the challenges which have arisen, such as in equipment supply, data analytics, combating social isolation, and of course, testing and vaccines. With educational establishments closed, a wave of online resources from nursery to university level have been spun up. And for the health service, facing unbelievable pressures, technology has been key to supporting business as usual. In this two-part episode of Unraveling the Digital Human, I want to explore our digital response to the coronavirus crisis and what its digital legacy is likely to be. What will be the lasting effects of mass remote working and social distancing? Joining me uh, virtually, of course, to discuss this and more is our first uh, expert panel and uh, ready to impart their wisdom and opinions. Uh, our first guest is Louis Dreyfus. Louis joins us from France uh, and works for an AI company focusing on business process automation. Uh, he is one half of Generation Snooze, the authors of uh, the French book Réveillons-nous, l'intelligence artificielle, le travail et les micro-tâches, uh, which I think loosely translates to wake up artificial intelligence work and micro-tasks. Uh, Louis, welcome. Um, your book is fairly recently out and, and perhaps the title says it all, but tell us a little bit more about uh, what you discuss in it. Yes, thanks, Chris, for, for having me. Um, as you said, I'm working in an an AI company focusing on on automation, and and the book essentially that I've co-written with a friend, uh, also working in technology, comes from what we saw in our daily professional lives, and uh, and bringing it to the general public. And what we saw is automation with the advent of AI making rapid rapid progress and transforming what we call work. And our belief is that what we call work and that has been pretty stable, let's say for the last, you know, 30, 40, 50 years uh, is going to massively change with the advent of robotics and AI. And um, it's going to transform the work into micro tasks. And what we mean by this is that people won't have to execute end-to-end -end processes. They will have to focus on exceptions and controls uh, after AI did the work. And this is not science fiction. 
This is what I'm already selling to my customers. Uh, this is what banks and insurers and the shared services are implementing as we speak. Uh, and it brings a completely new operating model for them. Um, and, uh, and we think we need to prepare. And just I think like we've seen that the lack of preparation is deadly, literally deadly uh, in the times of crisis like this one. Uh, the book, which was out in October last year, uh, essentially says the same thing about automation. We have a wave coming. Um, and if we don't prepare, if we don't wake up, if, if we don't anticipate, uh, the cost is going to be massively expensive for societies. And so we have a few months, a few years ahead of us to change this and anticipate. Louis, thanks. Well, it will be interesting to see your thoughts on whether this current uh, episode that we're in uh, has perhaps accelerated uh, that wave. Um, also joining us is Ben Park. Ben is Director of AI and Robotics at uh, Soprasteria, a leading European digital transformation company. Uh, ben, welcome. Um, Soprasteria, a, a large corporate working across uh, many sectors in, in lots of different technology fields. Um, what's been their response to, to this uh, current crisis? Indeed. Thank you for having me, Chris. Um, well, it's, it's yeah, so the, the response has been pretty broad, I would say, and, and I guess it really depends on how you would frame our response, because there's obviously the response that we've taken in an effort to try and help, uh, help our customers and help society in general address the challenge. Um, and to that end, we've been involved in a number of initiatives where we've been attempting to use digital technologies and, um, and some of our skills and capabilities to assist both the NHS and central government with dealing with, uh, with the fallout of, of COVID. Um, but equally, there's the response that we've had to make as an organisation ourselves. We're a business um, just like every other, um, and we have reliance on people just like every other business. So we've had to um, adapt uh, accordingly, and um, the nature of, of our business and the global nature of a business like Sophisteria um, has had significant ramifications for how we're able to maintain business continuity um, as a result of the global lockdown. So we've had to um, put a lot of effort into understanding how we maintain the continuity of the services that we deliver to our customers in, in all sectors, and particularly in, in, in the public sector, where in many instances we're supporting key services, um, you know, services that are critical to um, both the national economy, but also to the health of individuals within, within the UK. So um, that's been our primary focus, of course, um, is maintaining those services and understanding how we need to adapt and change our business model to accommodate uh, the situation we now find ourselves in. But also to then, um, particularly within our digital business, to, to explore how we can um, use some of these technologies to help um, address some of the challenges that we've seen around um, assisting key workers in getting access to, to food and groceries, about helping the government understanding um, or um, identifying um, potentially infected people. And I know we've been talking to the government uh, recently about how we could assist them with their um, uh, COVID tracing app. Um, and we've also been working with the NHS on a couple of solutions, which um, we've been hoping uh, will help them um, to continue to work together and importantly collaborate when they're all having to work um, separately from one another and in many cases working from home. Ben, brilliant. Thank you very much. Uh, welcome to you both. So let's let's perhaps start by looking at the 
uh, general response uh, within the work environment? Because I think there's uh, there are a number of, of sectors perhaps that are particularly hit, um, uh, and the the uh, those businesses that are within an office environment, I think particularly one education, of course, with everything being closed, healthcare. Um, so in that sort of general office environment that people are so used to, um, what's been the changes, uh, Louis, that's seen in France? So I think um, the interesting thing about France is we had, as many people say, we have strikes all the time. That's not completely true. <laughs> uh, but, but we had a major, massive one um, in December, uh, quite a long one. Uh, because of the pension uh, reform. Um, and it was kind of a pre preparation for um, what happened with, with COVID-19, uh, at least for the office work, right? Because people had to um, take the very basic logistics measures of making sure people could work from home because they couldn't access the office as easily or at all. Um, and so I think, you know, in the office work, um, what I've seen is that people were um, quite ready um, in, in the sense that, you know, the, the equipment was there because of that December, you know, fire drill, if you want. Um, the main issue was, of course, um, the schools being closed, uh, which is another dimension, right, another level, um, and, and the kids being around. So I think... What I've seen around is not so much working from home or working remotely. I think actually people will have a hard time going back to the office to some extent. Some people miss it, but I see a lot of people that say, I will go back, but I, I definitely see myself doing work, work from home for a major portion of the week in business as usual. Um, what has been challenging is reconciliating um, uh, both the private uh, family uh, activities and and keeping the, the kids safe and busy and and keeping with the, the work demand. I think that has been to me the the most challenge challenging thing. I think what I've seen for my customers when when you link this with automation is that they've realized that they have a an operating model which is uh, mid twentieth century, right? People need to show up on site. They need to show up from 9 a.m. to 5 a.m. All the work they do in bank back office is manual. Uh, an entire file goes to one person, so you have no parallel processing. Um, it's, there's no learning from what people do. And so they've realized that this model is completely not crisis-proof uh, and that hopefully they realize that there is no um, alternative then to make adjustments and, and automation can be one answer to, to that. So uh, it, have you seen them be able to turn around that automation in a, uh, in a time that meets the, the challenges that we're facing now? Um, it, they could close, they need to continue businesses uh, or, or trading, uh, they close their offices, but how has that automation helped them um, maintain that continuity? The honest answer, it, it, it hasn't. And that's why you need to anticipate because you cannot change your operating model when you're in a crisis. When you're in a crisis, you just need to survive the crisis, right? And you're going to do it with rubber and, and you know, um, 
battlefield techniques to fight what's happening in the next minute, in the next hour, in the next 24 hours, but you cannot reinvent things. I, I think it would be actually stupid probably to do it because you're going to break it. Um, so, so that's why you need to anticipate and that's why w businesses need to anticipate and run automation initiatives and transformation program uh, actually more broadly. And that's why we need to anticipate as a, as a, as a, as a society. In France, the big debate right now is uh, the decades of 2010s has been um, disarming the health answer to pandemics. And, and so we realize that it's not during the crisis that you can call the Chinese suppliers and say, um, supply me with masks because everybody's asking for them, including their own country. And so that's why we need to really, as businesses, individual societies, spend a lot of time on, on anticipation, way more than what we're doing, because when you're in the middle of it, automation is not going to help you. Uh, that's that's too bad, but, but that's the honest answer on what technology can do. So, Ben, has this been a, a wake-up call for UK companies then? I, I think so, yeah. I mean, I, I would completely agree uh, with what Louis just said just now. I think you, you cannot um, change your business model in the middle of a crisis. You can try and adapt, but any decisions that you take are likely going to be tactical um, in nature. Um, obviously, you just don't have the time to to go through the necessary processes to be able to deploy the sorts of solutions that would enable you to, under usual circumstances, automate process or um, or create additional efficiencies in your supply chain that would, would help um, deal with this particular situation. We do these kind of projects frequently and, and they're complex. They're often far more complex than we envisage and, and far more complex than our customers envisage um, and you know there's there's a there's a, often a view that automation is a quick win or a quick fix you know can we just deploy some rpa or a bit of ai here and there actually generally speaking when you get under the covers of a particular business process or service or function there are often many nuances and that takes time to analyze and to synthesize that data and then determine the most appropriate solution technology solution, but also change to culture, governance, structure, everything else, all of the change control processes within a business in order to al allow that to happen. And that's without even considering the workforce implications. So um, it isn't something you can just switch on at the touch of a button, ironically. Um, so what we're talking to customers at, um, about right now is preparing for the post-COVID-19 world. If I'm being honest with you, I think everybody's gone through damage control. Businesses are um, going through a period of, of adapting um, and attempting to get to some sense of normality, albeit a different normality, the new BAU, as we could call it. But they're starting now, in many cases, to think about what life will look like beyond COVID-19. And that is, I am already seeing a marked uptick in interest in the use of AI and automation and digital technologies in general um, to, to ensure businesses have increased resilience if this were to happen again or in the event of a similar situation. So, I mean, the, 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 the businesses in order to have this tactical response have uh, made quite considerable investment. I mean, you know, you, you look on Twitter and LinkedIn and you've got people posting crates and crates of laptops that suddenly have arrived because, you know, everybody uses a desktop in their office or they're just not in that sort of cultural environment where working from home uh it is accepted um surely 
companies will want to make the most of that investment? I think yes, um, you're right. I think companies will. I think everybody that's that's you know been involved in this experience and and who and obviously this this is not the, the experience is not the same for all industries. Um, those industries that are highly customer facing, retail industries and uh, sort of entertainment and um, and such like, you know that they simply cannot continue to operate under the current circumstances. However, those um, industries that are more service focused um, or knowledge worker based absolutely can continue to operate, and, and Sophisteria is is certainly in that bucket. Um, and for people in those industries, we're, we're getting used now to this new way of working, you know, remotely from home using um, video conferencing or audio conferencing technologies. And yes, in certain situations, I have, you know, I've, I've spoken to customers who've told me that they've had to rapidly deploy some sort of collaboration tool across their business because they just simply didn't have one. They, 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 you know, it was in their strategy, but they hadn't quite got around yeah. to actually getting it out there yet. But all of a sudden they have an imperative, right? So, but of course that brings with it its own challenges because you can make this service available to your employees, but there's no guarantee that they can use it. There's no guarantee that they've got sufficient internet bandwidth to, to use it effectively. And, and actually in some cases, a, a video conference with somebody who's got a really poor connection can be more frustrating than actually just calling them on the phone. Um, so, you know, it's, 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 yes, you can respond to this situation in a tactical manner and try and get kid out to people and stand up these new services. But as with any major transformation program, the, you know, the detail is often overlooked and it's only when you start to actually try and make these things work and make these things work effectively that you discover that there are all sorts of considerations that ideally you should have had the opportunity to plan for, which goes back to the previous point Louis was making about the need to really be thinking about this stuff way in advance. Preparation is key. Given that we know that this, you know, this current uh, period of time is going to have quite a detrimental effect on, on the economy. And a question to both of you, really, do you think that as companies emerge from this crisis, they will be minded to make the investment required to move into uh, more automated processes and more resilient um, uh, technology processes? Well, I think if, if I go first, I think this is, uh, in my view, this is going to be the big difference between poorly managed companies and, and well-managed companies, right? Because uh, if if you're poorly managed companies, um, probably you didn't start adapting your business model. So your organization is not used to transformation. Um, you've not put aside the, the budget, the energy, and the political capital to implement transformation. And so you'll be running after the, after the wave. And, and, uh, and automation will be last on the budget list because you have so many BAU stuff that you need to catch up with before. Uh, if you're a well-managed company and you understand you need to change, probably um, COVID is, is just an accelerator. It's not a revelation. Uh, so you've probably started this. You've uh, prepared your organization to do it. You've started to put aside budget to do it. You understand that it's a long-run exercise, and surely you will want to accelerate. Um, and, and so I think, to, to me, it's going to be a moment of truth, right? And I think people that are going to take the, 
the right steps in changing your operating model on the front office and in the back office through automation are going to come up as winners in the you know, next five to 10 years. Uh, the other ones probably are going to suffer more and more. Maybe at the beginning it will not see because as you don't invest, well, probably you, 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 know, you keep your margins, you keep your P&L uh, safe, but I think it's just an illusion because um, at some point the lack of investment is going gonna, is gonna to bite you back. Ben, any thoughts on? Indeed, I, I, I sort of I hate to sound like um, like I'm constantly echoing echoing everything Louis says, but he's absolutely right. Um, I think you know it's it's probably fair to say that many many organisations take a pretty short term view to strategy. You know, most organisations work with a detailed strategy that's no more than twelve months. Um, you know, I, I, there is this underlying notion that planning anywhere beyond sort of three to four years is pretty impossible anyway. But but that said. I think many organizations will invest in those projects where they can see in-year returns on their investment, um, or they will prioritize um, their budget against burning platform-based issues. Um, and you know, I frequently, frequently see organizations putting a lot of time and effort and money into major platform replatforming projects, for instance, um, but ultimately without really considering the long-term benefit of refreshing their technology estate with some of these newer versions of the software, they're not considering the long-term, uh, the, the, you know, the long-term concepts of using automation to really drive value. They're just, they're just, they're just addressing the burning platform issue. Um, and, and this is not unusual. I think many businesses caught, find themselves caught between two stools. Do we deal with the burning platform or do we try and invest in the future? And it's a really difficult decision to make. So I totally understand why, um, organizations prioritize sometimes against these poten potentially more long-term investments. But the simple reality is, is that, you know, automation, AI, these technologies are going to be the future of work. If I'm, if I'm allowed to coin that, uh, use that cliche, somewhat cliched expression here on this call, but it's, you know, it is ultimately where this is all moving. And those slightly more um, far-sighted organizations that are genuinely planning for the future will be investing in those kinds of capabilities now because they will pay off in the longer term. Absolutely. So, so let's talk a little bit about the future then. Um, uh, at some point, uh, all of this, uh, uh, this sort of crisis situation will end. Um, uh, when? We don't exactly know, um, but, but it will come to an end at some point. What do businesses need to do to prepare um, from a, a technology, a digital point of view, uh, to leave this 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 sort of crisis uh, period. I'll, I'll go first, and, and then hopefully Ben is going to echo what I said. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a pattern forming here. <laughs> it's going to be the running joke, but um, yeah. I, I think. I, I think so. It's a very complex question. Um, I will answer at the level of principles, right, and, and tenets. Um, I think first you need to shed away what you've learned so far to some extent, right? What I mean by this is if you if you transform your operating model, but you think work is not going to change, um, you're not going to transform much. Uh, the second thing is I think people should very quickly go into action maybe on a small scope 
maybe on a small perimeter, but do something live. I see so many of my customers that say, we want to start with a proof of concept. Um, and proof of concept is really, we want to make sure that technology works. And big news, technology works, right? The question is uh, not whether technology works. The, tech, the question is, does it work for you in a real-life uh, production uh, context? And for that, you're not going to learn in a lab, right? You're not going to learn in a um, clean and protected and virtual environment. You're going to learn by taking some bits of your business and starting to transform it. And hopefully you're going to learn on this and then go bigger, go bigger and reapply the learnings. I think also people should understand that um, the, the last thing I would say is organizations are siloed, especially in, in, you know, if you take banks and insurance and every silo thinks what they're doing is unique. And what you see with robotics and AI is that uh, if you've developed a robot that is able to do something or learn something, depending on the type of technology you use, um, very often you could reuse this bot elsewhere. And that means the spreading of technology is much faster. And you can't do this with humans, right? You can't clone good employees. But if people log into the same systems, even if they do different stuff, some of what they do in the system, like the logging part, will be similar. And so automation you've created in one place can be reused in another. And what that means is you need to start stop thinking in silos, but you need to start thinking about reusability across your organization. And I think that's also something which is very hard for people to do uh, because it's a completely different lens that you need to apply to your own people and the way they work. Uh, so I would say this, right? Uh, forget about how work used to look like and how your operating model used to look like. Um, do something real and scale and think reusability across the silos um, not just automating process A in division A and you think that's it because actually process A in division A is 50% similar to what other people in division B are doing. And that's an uplift. So this holistic, uh, looking at designing in a holistic way across across your whole business rather than simply within individual uh, divisions. Brilliant. Um, ben? Absolutely. Um, so... Um, for me, it, it all comes down to that design phase. Um, Louis is correct that, you know, in, in the future, work will be broken down into micro activities. We're already starting to see that now. The impact on the workforce is going to be significant here and, and organisations need to prepare for that. That is going to be not only a major cultural change, it's also going to mean an actual physical change to their business model in terms of how people work, where they work, when they work, what skills they need, how they're trained and recruited. And it's going to have significant ramifications for the career life cycle. Um, we started looking into this recently, um, originally from an ethical perspective, but it's sort of swiftly moved into a more pragmatic approach of trying to understand what are the longer term implications of delivering automation at scale into an organisation. And, and we've quickly come to the realisation that that it's going to have major um, implications for, for the workforce. And um, governments are starting to wake up to this now, and uh, significant amounts of public funding are being put into projects and initiatives to try and 
address this issue, but it's not going to be easy. And industry needs to wake up. They need to understand that this is coming down the line. If you don't start to adopt some of these digital technologies, you will no longer be competitive. Yeah, you knew what you will no longer create competitive edge and you will no longer deliver the kinds of services that your customers will simply expect. But to do that, you need to understand that your business needs to change. Your business model needs to change. And the culture within your organization very probably needs to change as well. Um, I think partly that is a people issue. Partly it's how you use technology and how you think about the use of technology within your company. But if I had, you know, I, if I had a, a pound for every company that I've worked with that wanted to do an automation project and they started off with a proof of concept and then spent the, spent the next two to three years, you know, slowly but surely creeping around their business, trying to beg, steal or borrow, buy in to do other automation projects on another process in another business part area, you know, I'd be a millionaire by now. The simple fact is that that, that kind of land and very, very slowly expand approach tends to actually lead to a slow creeping death because you're only ever as good as your last success. And if you if you automate one process poorly, you'll suddenly lose business support. What businesses really need to be doing is looking at this much more strategically. They need to be employing proper design centric services. Um, and I'm talking not necessarily technological design, I'm thinking more sort of human-centric, customer-centric design capabilities that can look holistically across your business and understand your customers or even your colleagues and what it is that they need both now, but more importantly in the future, and how you design services or solutions to address those needs. They will be more transformative. They will require a significant leap of faith in many instances. And for many companies, that will be a leap of faith too far. But I think that will be the difference between those companies that survive and those companies that fail in the future. Thank you. So I, I, there's a few things, I think, that, that from what you both said uh, uh, that I've pulled out. So this idea of holistic design, designing across the whole business, not just in silos but that that design including an element of being people centric i think there is there's clearly uh, and it's come out in the discussion today there's clearly a human element to this in uh, and a cultural element uh, to this if work is going to change in the future the nature of work is going to change then we need to understand the impact on people that are doing the work now in the more traditional uh, way uh, and what it means for them in terms of retraining, redeployment, etc. Uh, and then the third thing uh, that I pulled out is around um, leadership buy-in. Um, uh, and I think, Ben, your description of uh, proofs of concepts uh, uh, perhaps uh, illustrates this well, that you know, a proof of concept in a tiny part of the business perhaps is an indicator that the top leadership – uh perhaps don't buy into this idea yet um and so it's trying you know we're trying to do it by stealth rather than having um that sort of top leadership buy-in uh and spreading uh automation or change in operating model across across the business yeah absolutely these sorts of projects do need top-down support so they need vision and commitment from you know the the sea level down throughout the business i think increasingly you know the challenge for organizations like ours, um, is to have, be having these conversations at the right level within the customer organization. Um, and occasionally we get it right. Very often we don't. Um, but the, it's the difference between success and failure. If, if the support and the energy and the imperative 
for these kinds of projects comes from too low down within the business is unlikely to get traction in the longer term. So it really does require um, sort of C-level executives and, and their direct reports to, to understand um, not only what these technologies can do, but also how they can add value to their business and fully embrace them. So I think you've both uh, at some point in the conversation mentioned uh, this crisis as an accelerator for change rather than being um, uh, the, the main driver for change. Because actually, if you haven't started already that transformation, um, uh, this is not the time to do it. So, um, uh, and I'm sure you both sort of keep quite a keen eye on developments and trends and what's happening. What's been the most surprising or the most welcome sort of digital change that you've seen during this this period? Um, ben, perhaps if you go first. Um, that's a good question. What's been the most welcome change as a result of the changes that we've seen? Um, I, I think, you know, I've, I've seen some customers become a little bit more open-minded to embracing digital technologies. Um, it, I think in some cases that the acceleration is as a result of a breakdown of certain barriers. Um, certainly, um, I've seen that recently in the UK within the NHS, for instance, um, an industry um, that is um, notoriously difficult to break into, um, many, many layers of bureaucracy and, and boundaries, all for generally speaking, very good reasons, I should add, you know, to prevent rapid innovation in some cases. Um, and I'm sure NHSX would probably have something to say about that. But the reality is it's very hard um, to break into that business with, with new products and services. However, um, in the current circumstances, we've seen a, a slightly more relaxed approach to that, I think, which has enabled um, particularly private sector organisations to, to add a bit more value than maybe they, they would have done usually. Um, certainly, we've seen that directly um, off the back of um, one of the digital capabilities we've been working on that uses um, holographic technology. Um, and we've been speaking to the NHS about this for a couple of years, in fact, longer, um, but have recently seen a, a marked uptake in terms of um, interest from doctors and surgeons to want to use a technology primarily because it really supports remote collaboration. Um, it was always a, um, a key selling point of the, of the technology, but in, under these circumstances, it's suddenly become the primary selling point of the technology. Um, and, the, and the doctors and the nurses and the surgeons that are using it are telling us that it's a, an absolute game changer for them under these circumstances. Um, so it's, it's, I guess it's opening eyes to the, to the possibilities um, uh, whereas under normal circumstances, perhaps there'd be a bit more, um, there'd be more barriers in the way to to innovation and to get, getting getting some of these new technologies in the hands of people so that they can actually see them working. Wonderful, uh, Louis. The most surprising or welcome digital change you've seen. So, I don't know if it's the most surprising or welcome, but that's the one that has struck me most and you know when we wrote the book in, in it was published in october um the the book says um with ai work is changing and is good is going to become micro tasks and those micro tasks essentially you can you can do them from wherever you are right because the work is so tiny uh because ai has done so much of the work as a human you'll be you'll be asked to step in to maybe control a field controlled something but it's going to be tiny right and just like in a car factory right now you're just doing one thing to build the whole car here as a human you'll just do one thing one little thing 
to execute the end-to-end business process. And that means you can outsource and you can disseminate those micro tasks on the cloud, right? You can push them through a virtual environment to people. And that's what, you know, marketplaces uh, for click workers are doing online. And I think one of the barriers to that was banks and insurers and shared services saying, no, but people have to be in our premises, right? They, they need to show up. They need to be there from nine to five. We need to touch them. We need to somehow control what they do. But now all of a sudden, there's nobody in the office, right? Everybody's home. And, and people are not working from nine to five. Some people are working from six to seven in the morning before the kids wake up. Then they work from one to two when the kids nap and then they work late. Right. And so you're realizing that you can um, have actually people deliver stuff remotely, that the, the rigid framework um, explodes. And so, you know, if, if you told me three months ago or two months ago, uh, you know, what's the main blocker? I think that would have been this cultural thing that is blocking leadership to making the leap. Right. And, and it's a leap of faith. And now nature and, you know, history is essentially forcing us to make that leap. And that's to me, it's it's massive because it's it's a cultural barrier that is probably down somehow, not everywhere, not to the same extent, but it, it took a hit. And uh, and so it makes it even more important to prepare and anticipate because it means that anticipation will be faster, probably. And so that's to me the most striking. Is it welcome? Yes and no. It depends if we anticipate. Um, it's definitely surprising in the sense that I didn't see it coming and, and it strikes me massively. So it sounds like perhaps the you know technology aside, because uh, you know in throughout this discussion we've said if you haven't started that digital transformation, you know you're unlikely to have uh, uh, have started it in crisis. Much more tactical tactical response from a a pure technology point of view. But perhaps then uh, what we're saying is the the main legacy or a main legacy of uh, this uh, COVID nineteen crisis is um, this opening up of a mindset which says um, work is changing, work is different, um, and that is okay. And when I come out of this, I'm ready to uh, embrace that new operating model and what that means for my people and my technology. It's it's an interesting viewpoint. I think it's uh, what I would say, Chris, is that uh, it's an age-old saying, but necessity is the, the mother of all invention. And I, and I don't think that statement has ever been truer than currently within this COVID-19 crisis. We are seeing innovation happening all over the space. And if it's not innovation, it is simply an embracing of uh, digital technologies that many of us, quite frankly, have been aware of and have been using for some time now, but for, but for many, it's perhaps has just been seen as a as a luxury or perhaps um, a, a, um, an unnecessary, um, um, you know, um, aspect to, to, to their uh, requirements or their portfolio of services. But under these circumstances, people are starting to use them, and 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 that is that's fantastic. I think it's an absolute positive because it is opening up the eyes of not just our customers, but people within our own organizations and family and friends and everybody else as to the real value that, that digital technologies can bring. And we must remember that behind many of these digital technologies are, you know, 
similar, you know, their downstream um, adjuncts in, in terms of artificial intelligence or AI and, and even automation in many cases that are powering these these solutions. And, and I think it's just creating an awareness that um, on a scale that we haven't seen before, which which is a which is fantastic news for global digital adoption. I think the question as to whether it will stick is another matter entirely. Um, I suspect that you know there will be a residual um, uptick in the use of these technologies beyond the COVID um, situation and when and when things start to relax down a little bit, but. If I were to take a slightly pessimistic view, I would suggest that humans have a habit of um, falling back into their natural mode of operation. And I suspect that for for reasons, some some will be very good reasons, others perhaps um, a little bit less um, clear. Uh, many people and many organisations will simply revert back into old ways of working. Um, I, I truly hope that isn't always the case. You know, I really would love to see um, some of these new ways of working become core to the operating models of many businesses going forward. There are numerous, there are myriad reasons why that should be the case, not least commercial reasons. Um, you know, the money it saves businesses in terms of um, expenses and travel, but also ecological reasons, the impacts on the environment and, and, and human individual human well-being reasons. People like being at home more. They like being around their families. They like having flexible working patterns. But the challenge is, is that as soon as some people start to revert to normal working patterns, often other people feel the need to follow suit. Um, and my worry is that you'll start to see a slow, gradual drift back to working the way that we were working before. Louis, you mentioned uh, towards the beginning that you thought people would have a hard time going back to the office environment. Um, that seems a, perhaps a little at odds with, with, with what Ben's saying, but uh, uh, do you think this will stick? Well, I, I, hearing Ben, I think what, what he was mentioning was with people that have the power of initiating transformations and, and moving the needle and changing the operating model. And, and I think it's true, right? Some companies have management that sometimes lack the vision and that management may go back to the old vision. Right. It was just a bump in the road and, you know, we'll go back to usual. I think my comment was more on the workers, right, the employees in, in themselves. And I think um, it, it, it could be a danger for people, for companies that don't adapt, because I think if you expect people to be back in the office as usual, first, I think you're completely neglecting the fear element. But, you know, people are aware that there is a virus and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a nasty disease, right? So um, you, you'll, you'll neglect this and I think people will be resentful to this. And second, I think you will just uh, dismiss the fact that people have lived and, and, and worked completely differently in the last three months or two months. And this is a long period of time. I don't think, you know, when you take in France, we have good vacation and and that's four weeks in the summer right here we're talking 2x 3x and so if if you think that people didn't take habits uh, and will go back to usual i think it's it's wrong and i think it's also an employer proposition right if you want to attract the best talent notably the best digital talents um i don't think pushing for a nine to five work 
on-premises will be massively attractive anymore. I don't think it was attractive before, but surely it's not going to be anymore. So people will be happy that the schools reopen. Um, it's definitely a challenge to um, accumulate work and 24-7 daycare for kids. But at the same time, uh, they've opened up to other stuff. And I think you need to reflect this. And I think a good digital leader should have a vision and also be able to adapt the working mode so that people are motivated to work for such organization. Well, perhaps then on that uh, a bit of advice uh, and perhaps a bit of a warning, perhaps we'll uh, leave the discussion there for today. Thank you very much to my two guests, Ben Park and Louis Dreyfus. Uh, in part two, we're going to delve further into at the impact of this crisis on digital healthcare, uh, look at technology innovation, and perhaps consider some of the key ethical questions. Uh, of course, don't miss a single episode of Unraveling the Digital Human by subscribing wherever you find your favourite podcasts. Uh, join me next time as we unravel the digital human.